as every church does. So, Lord willing, maybe next week even I'll get around to that message, but I'm absolutely convinced that the Lord has something different tonight. Acts chapter number 1, let's read verse 6, 7, and 8. Acts 1, verse number 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. It always amazes me whenever I read the book of Acts and think about the history of that early church. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but to think about what God did is just mind-boggling. And then we think about the churches today, and the question that comes to my mind is, how would you describe the ideal church? You know, we use all kinds of different descriptive phrases uh, when we speak about the church. We talk about, uh, use the word Baptist, of course, here. Uh, and uh, not only Baptist, but we use the, the word independent. We are independent Baptist, and we are unaffiliated independent Baptist. Sometimes churches use the word fundamental. That The very first church I pastored had fundamental in its name, And all of that's fine. And we also talk about the kind of churches, you know, that we prefer, such as somebody might say, well, ideal church to me would be a friendly church. I've often said, you know, we might have a lot of excuses for a lot of things, uh, you know, not having the best preaching in the world or the best this or the biggest building or whatever, but We never have an excuse for being unfriendly. We can at least be that when we can't be anything else. And that's uh, a lot of people put a premium on that, and that's well and good. And so they might describe the ideal church as being a church that's friendly. Somebody else, you might say, well, it ought to be a growing church. And I think that's a good thing. We all want to see the church grow. Somebody else, in fact, uh, I've heard the churches referred to many times as a soul-winning church. Well, thank God for that. We ought to be, as verse number 8 tells us, we ought to be uh, winning the loss to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of that's well and good. But what would you say is the very best description of a church? How, 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 would, you, how would you describe it? Well... It might be. In fact, I can remember preaching a message uh, uh, by this title, and it might be the very best one. I don't know, a Christ-centered church. Because if we're not a Christ-centered church, boy, I'll tell you what, we're nothing. Uh, We need to keep him at the forefront of all that we do. But there's another phrase that comes to my mind also, and it is... uh, it is very closely connected with a the, the phrase Christ-centered church, and that is a spirit-filled church. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. 
If it is a spirit-filled church, it'll be everything else that it ought to be. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that certainly describes the early church uh, that's pictured in the book of Acts. And as I said, the history of that church is amazing. What God did with that little handful of people just staggers the mind. I mean, you know, how could so few... uh, reach so many and accomplish so much it's amazing but it's not just amazing it is of great importance also and I say that because it's important because it provides for us a model of what a church ought to be now a lot of things of course have changed they didn't have you know buildings to meet in like we do today they didn't have a sound system they you know didn't have air conditioning and all of those things Some churches today have bus ministries that, you know, that avenue wasn't available to the early church. But in all of the basic fundamental matters related to the church, that early church provides for us a pattern or a model. And it's important that we we, uh, not only look back at them with admiration, but that we rather be determined in our heart to do what we can to make the church what it was and what it ought to be. The key phrase in all of this is is repeatedly stated in the book of Acts uh, where the phrase filled with the Spirit is used. You find it here? Look, look across the page in chapter 2 and verse number 4, and it says, And they were all, now this is 120 in the upper room, a little handful of 120 people in the upper room, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here we find that just the first part of that is what's amazing. A lot of people, they think the amazing part of it is they spoke in tongues. Oh, they're speaking in other languages as God enabled them to do. That was before the completion of the Bible. And that was a means that God used to get the word out. At that time, if you read on, you'll discover that there were people from all of the different nations that were assembled there. And so how in the world are you going to, how are you going to get the message to those people in such a short matter of time and this great opportunity as they have met there in Jerusalem, they're in the area, and so the Lord empowered the 120 to speak with other languages. But look, that's not the most amazing part of it to me. The most amazing part is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think about the elders being filled with the Holy Spirit. You might think about the elders and the deacons and Sunday school teachers, you know, being filled with the Spirit. But All of them? I mean, every single one of the 120, according to that, was filled with the Spirit. So we see that phrase used there. It's used again in chapter number 4 and verse 8 and verse 31, chapter 9, chapter 13, uh, and, and over and over again we find that phrase. Now, the first thing we need to do if we're going to talk about a spirit-filled church, we need to have an understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? Well, it simply means this, that we be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's obvious from the way that the word filled is used in other regards throughout the New Testament. 
For example, and we're not going to turn to all of these verses, but I'll make mention of them. Over in the book of Luke, chapter number 4, it speaks about there in the city of Nazareth, and it talks about the fact that they were filled with anger. Uh, That's simply indicating that those people were controlled by anger. They were raging. And and whenever you get over to Acts chapter number 19, it speaks about the city of Ephesus there. And it says they are filled with confusion. And so that is all of these people are being controlled by their confusion. In Acts chapter number 5, it says that the heart of Ananias was filled by Satan, that he is under the influence of of satanic power. John 16 and verse number 6, Jesus said to his followers that that sorrow hath filled your hearts. In other words, they they are overcome with the sorrow that is in their heart. And then on at least three different occasions, uh, the, the Bible speaks about being filled with the Spirit and illustrates it and makes a contrast with being intoxicated with wine. Now, the intoxicated person is under the influence of the alcohol, just as believers are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, whenever a person is intoxicated, they'll do things, very foolish things, that I could talk at great length about tonight from personal experience that I wish I had never had, but you do things that ordinarily you would never do. And it's always in a bad sense, of course. When it comes to the Holy Spirit being under His influence and His control, we are enabled to do things that ordinarily we could never do on our own. That's why it's so very important. So whenever you see him speaking about being filled with the Spirit, that is exactly what he's talking about, us being controlled by the Spirit. That's the meaning, but we also need to consider the manifestations of it. In other words, how do you know a church is Spirit-filled? It's one thing to say that we have a Spirit-filled church. There are some churches that even put it out on their sign. Right out there for everybody to see, a spirit-filled church. But what does a spirit-filled church really look like? There's a lot of confusion about this. Uh, Some people might say, you know, it's all about the size of the crowd. You know, if it's one of these mega churches, why, oh, that's undoubtedly got to be a spirit-filled church. Well, not necessarily. You can get a big crowd at an Astros game, amen? Uh, Yeah, the size of the crowd has nothing to do with whether or not the Holy Spirit is involved in it. Now, I love to see the church grow. That ought to be the desire of our heart. But that's not indicative of the fact that the Spirit of God has empowered the church. For others, it's all about the excitement. In other words, they want lots of emotion. Well, I'm certainly not against emotion. I think emotion is a great thing. I think we probably need a whole lot more of it. We need more tears. We need more shouting. We need more excitement in that sense. Uh, I'm not against emotions. The Bible's not against emotion. But listen, emotion is not indicative of a church being spirit-filled. And a lot of times people, they, they go to church and they say, I've heard the phrase over and over again, man, I'll tell you, the Spirit of God was there. I mean, you could just feel the Spirit of God. And what they meant was, I really got excited. 
you see. There's a big difference, folks. And a lot of folks have no understanding of the three distinct parts of the human person, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Of course, the body is the seat of, you know, our world consciousness. We relate to the things around us. That's our body, our physical senses. Uh, our soul is the seat of self-consciousness, the mind, the will, and the emotion. But the spirit is the seat of God consciousness. And it's real easy to confuse what's going on in your soul with the spirit. And they're not one and the same. They're two different functions of the person. And it's easy for us to get excited, uh, you know, about, about something. Being born and raised in Springfield, Missouri, and I had the wonderful privilege of getting to know a lot of the most famous preachers in all of the land. Not only that, but also we had all of those and this was back in the heyday of the southern gospel music and all of the quartets and man i mean they were on the road and getting big crowds and all of those quartets would come through there and i mean just every week or two you could go listen to a different one i've heard all of them and i've got to tell you i, I it's pretty exciting to be at one of those concerts it really is because boy i mean that music just touches your heart but by the way, that doesn't mean the Spirit of God is in there just because of that. One of my best friends, uh, uh, they started a quartet. In fact, they won the, they won the award uh, that, that particular year for the best new quartet in the, in the country. And, uh, and he told me later on, I'm getting off track now, but I think it's important that we understand this. As he began to mingle with all of these top quartets and what have you, and he began to tell me the stories of what really goes on a lot of times when the concert is over, let me tell you, all of those folks are not as spiritual-minded as you might think they are. You know, it's kind of like old Red Foley when we had the Ozark Jubilee there in Springfield. Oh, Red Foley, you know, he'd get arrested one night for beating his wife down on the public square, and the next night he's singing on the Ozark Jubilee, one of his famous religious songs. Uh, some of the best, some of the best singers, and you've heard me say, I've I've got a whole set of cassettes, I think it is, or might be eight track, I don't know, of George Jones singing religious quartets. I. Boy, I love to hear George Jones sing. Maybe you don't, but but I, I do. But that doesn't, that doesn't for one second mean that I think God's in it. I'm just trying to get you to see everything that moves your emotions is not necessarily something that comes from God. For others, it's all about the personality of the pastor. Oh, I mean, you know, if he's got a charming personality and he can just kind of sweep people off of their feet, oh, yeah, boy, I tell you, the Spirit of God is there. And if we're going to find the answer to that question, the manifestations of the Spirit, how do we recognize a Spirit-filled church, then we've got to read the Bible. We've got to find out what God's Word said. And according to the book of Acts, now, this would be a separate study, and any one thing I mention here could be a separate sermon all to itself. But all of these things are found just in the book of Acts. 
the Spirit-filled church is going to be manifested or characterized by, number one, the fact that it is a Christ-centered church. In fact, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, not to draw attention to himself. The work of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention unto the Son of God, you see. That's his ministry. That's his work here on this earth. And so any church that's a spirit-filled church is going to be a Christ-centered church. It's going to be a church that is committed to what we call the Christian disciplines. That's Bible study, prayer, fasting, all of those things that we call Christian disciplines. A spirit-filled church will be committed to those things. A spirit-filled church will be conformed to the Scriptures. It'll be cooperative in their business. It'll be consecrated to the work of God. It'll be considerate of others, concerned about the loss, compassionate toward other people, charitable in their giving, courageous in adversity, confident in their suffering. And you go through the book of Acts and you see every single one of those things somewhere there. And it all has to do with what the Spirit of God did with those people in that day, you see. Any church that's not under the control of the Holy Spirit is out of control. I mean, our attendance, we may be busting out the seams. The offerings might be overflowing. I mean, we're about to bust the bank. We got so much money, you know, I don't have to worry about paying bills or anything like that. We Look, we can have all of those things going for us, but if we're not controlled by the Spirit of God, we're out of control. And what he desires is more important than what we decide. You know, we can get together as a church, for example, and have a unanimous vote on something. Isn't that wonderful? I pastored enough little country churches. I know what it's like to know ahead of time that if you're going to have a matter of business, there's going to be somebody that's going to oppose it. That They've made it their life mission. Oh, brother, I got a question about that. And oh, here we go. I mean, you can't buy a roll of toilet paper without somebody getting in an argument about what brand. And there are churches that are like that. I thank God that we just, I mean, I can't even remember when we had a vote on something and it wasn't unanimous. It is amazing. But look, we can all get together and have a unanimous vote on some issue and, and make mistakes. We're not perfect, you see. And so that's why we need to be controlled and guided by the Spirit of God because if we're going to do the work of God, we need the mind of Christ. That's what Paul said to the church at Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And that requires guidance from the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you right now, He never works and guides us apart from the Word of God. Amen. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, Paul said. Amen. And the Spirit of God guides us by the Word of God. Now, can you imagine a church where every member is filled with the Spirit and, and manifesting these, these graces that we've talked about? Uh, think about the graces that make up the fruit of the Spirit. For example, there in Galatians chapter number 5. Uh, look, the fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit of God produces. 
And if we're controlled by the Spirit of God, then there's going to be love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith, meekness, temperance. Think about those nine things. Can you imagine what God could do with and for and through a church where every single member manifests all nine of those graces? I, 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 I mean, it just boggles the mind to think about uh, what that would be like. Every member. I've never been in a church like that. I preached in revival meetings all over this country and, and in different churches and Bible conferences. I know some great churches. And, but I tell you, I've never been in a church where for one second I would I would have the audacity to say, well, I'll tell you what, every member of their church is a spirit-filled Christian. You ever been in a church like that? None of us have. But the early church was evidently that way, 120 in the upper room, and they were all filled with the Spirit. And that 120 people, to think about what that little handful of people did is amazing. They shook their world for Christ. And you can attribute all of it to the fact that they were filled with the Spirit of God. Wow. Do, do you reckon that, that that door of opportunity, that possibility is available to us today? Well, absolutely it is. If that's what God expects from us, that's what God will provide for us. And he expects us to be spirit-filled Christians. Now, here's what we've got to remember. You know, a lot of times we expect something out of the church that we don't expect for ourselves. And we've got to remember that for this to happen, it has to happen one person at a time. It's an individual matter. It's not something that just all of a sudden happens to every member of the church. It's something that'll happen, you know, to one person and then another and then another. As I said, I preached a lot of revival meetings, but I've never been in a revival meeting where the entire church was revealed or revived just instantaneously. Just kaboom, we got a church-wide revival. No, a lot of times we use that phrase, church-wide revival. But I can almost guarantee you every member of the church is not revived as a result of that meeting. But I'll tell you what does happen. There'll be a lot of times I can remember preaching just outside of St. Louis over in a little church out in the National Forest. And I'll never forget that little old grandmother that would come forward every night for the first few nights she would come. And she didn't just pray, but I'll tell you what, she had tears in her eyes. Her heart was broken. I prayed with her, and she was so concerned about her family. And I saw another night or two later, all of a sudden, her son and daughter-in-law showed up in the service, and they were there, and she had been praying. They were Christian people, but they were out of the will of God and out of church. And that night, they got their heart right with God, and little grandma come up there and she was praying and they came and repented of their sins and they got things right. Lo and behold, the next night, some of their kids came. 
And I say kids, I'm talking about people that were, you know, 18, 20 years old. And they got some things right, and there was one that was way out there, and boy, now we've got the family all praying for that one, and I'll never forget that night that one came. Hadn't been coming to church, but for whatever reason, that that person came that night, and as a result of that, was saved. And it all goes back to Grandma. You see, a lot of times revival takes place because it takes a little spark sometimes, that, and we all have an influence on one another. And let me tell you, there's nobody that has more influence on people than a spirit-filled Christian. You get around a spirit-filled Christian and it begins to affect the way you think and the way you conduct yourself. If we're going to have a spirit-filled church, it has to happen one person at a time. Amen? Now, that brings us down to the third and final thing, and that's the means. If we're going to have a spirit-filled church, and if it has to happen one person at a time, what is the means? And I've spoken about this a lot of times on different occasions when we're studying Ephesians especially, and I have to say there is no specific verse in the Bible that I can find that tells us that we've got to do absolutely this or that. Here in Ephesians, where I'm turning here, we receive these instructions in chapter number 5 and verse 18. He tells us, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. Now, that's emphatic. He's not saying think about it, pray about it. He's saying be filled with the Spirit. But but he doesn't tell us, do this, do that, and you'll be filled with the Spirit. So it goes back, look, if, if, if being filled with the Spirit is being controlled by the Spirit under the influence of the Spirit, then for that to happen, something has to happen in order to make that possible. And that would be that we have to surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God. I don't know how, how else to say it. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, that's exactly what he's saying, that we are to yield ourselves. In fact, over in Romans chapter number 6, and if you want to read something that will head you in the right direction, start like in verse number 12 through verse 22, where the Apostle Paul there is talking about this matter of us yielding ourselves, surrendering ourselves to the Spirit of God. He says, Reckon yourself dead unto sin, but alive unto God. And then he says, Yield yourself. Yield yourself. Because if we haven't yielded ourselves to the Lord, then we're not under the control of the Lord. Remember Romans chapter number 12 and verse number 1? What does that say? Somebody tell me. I beseech thee. Somebody, come on. What? That's right. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. That's surrender. You're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice unto God, you see. Think about it. Look, folks, that, that's all we can do. That's the only thing we can do. Take our hands off of our life. We are to give ourselves. You know, we talk about the potter and the clay, and we're the clay, and he's the potter, and we yield ourselves to him, and he molds us and makes us, you know, what we ought to be. And I've often said, you know, 
Maybe we need to think of it as him as the great composer and we take our life like a blank sheet of paper and let him write his own composition on it. Just say, Lord, here's my life. I can't do anything. I'm not worth anything. I don't deserve anything. But here's my life. Take it and use it and do with it whatever you will. Be filled with the Spirit. I said a while ago that is emphatic, be filled with the Spirit, but it's more than that. Literally in the Greek that means, now don't miss this, be being filled. You got it? Be being filled. It's an ongoing process. It's something that, that we do over and over and over again. It's not like salvation. In salvation, you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you become a child of God and you are forever a child of God. You're born again into the family of God. He gives you what kind of life? Eternal life. How long is eternity? Well, it's forever. I mean, there's no end to it. And he says, that is your possession. I give that to you. You might fail God, but he'll never fail you. And you have eternal life as your possession. You say, that's a one-time thing. You don't get saved again and again and again and again. The Bible doesn't say you must be born again and again and again and again. It says you must be born again just one time. That's all it takes. But when it comes to this matter of being filled with the Spirit of God... That's something that we have to do over and over, the surrendering of ourselves. And it is essential that we do that. When Peter in Acts chapter number 5, when he's talking to the Sanhedrin, uh, this is the Jewish, these are the Jewish leaders, and he's got them all together and speaking to them. And he said to them that the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So you see, when, and it's by implication that if I surrender my life to God, then I'm going to obey God, right? I think a lot of people want God to empower them. God wants them to give them joy unspeakable and full of glory and peace that passeth all understanding. They want all of those things, and at the same time, they want to put limitations on what God does with them. You know, kind of cafeteria style. Lord, you know, I don't mind doing this and this and that, but, you know, I'm going to leave the other out. That's not being surrendered at all. If we're not all surrendered, we're not surrendered at all. It's when we take our hands off of our life every day, daily, the giving of ourselves in surrender to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he demands that we surrender ourselves. Didn't the Lord say, no man can be my disciple unless he, what, daily takes up his cross and follow me? He's got to deny himself daily. He emphasized that. You go through the book of Acts again, and I've got a message I preach about daily Christianity because over and over again it talks about what they did every day. And they didn't just have church on Sunday they went out every day, and it tells us that in Acts chapter number 2 that the Lord added to the church daily, every day, such as was being saved. Uh, imagine that. Wow, every day somebody getting saved. 
No, we think it's a great big deal if somebody gets saved, you know, on Sunday, and it is. That's wonderful. I wish it happened every single Sunday, but think about people being saved every day. Well, it happened every day because every day they ceased not to teach and preach the Lord Jesus Christ. They went out in every house, it says. They knocked on every door, went to every house. They went into the temple. Boy, you talk about walking into the lion's den. I mean, they went into the temple and those self-righteous Jews, and they went in there and proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll never reach our potential until we realize what God could do for us and through us. And the key to all of it is us being willing to, uh, for the Holy Spirit to control everything about our life. The key is not education. I'm not against education. I wish I'd gotten more of it. I uh, Get all the education you can and then forget you got it. That's the best way. I, I, I don't mind telling you I just want to vomit whenever I whenever I hear so see the making such a big deal out of honorary doctorate degrees oh I'm a doctor now really really I'm well that's a pet peeve I, I, I don't even want to go there probably got some folks listening by by the internet that not going to like that because they're kind of proud of their honorary doctor degree you know well, uh, I'm not against people getting a real genuine doctor's degree. Boy, I've got some preacher friends that I'm telling you that are smart as a whip. They're brilliant. And, and that's good. They don't go around acting like it either. You see, education's good, but education's not the key for what we need. It's not talent. Well, we've got a lot of talent here in the church. We really do. I, we ever get all of our musicians back and what have you, and the, the, the singers and all of the talent that we've got. The key is not talent. The key is not more money. Uh, God really did something unusual for me anyway a few years ago. Uh, there was a time I was a hands-on pastor. I knew everything that was going on. I could tell you what the offering was, the exact attendance. I knew everything was going on, made it my business. I don't have any idea what our offerings are. Somebody want to know how much money we got in the bank? I don't know. I don't have any idea how much money in the bank. I don't worry about it. I don't even want to know. I don't care. Because if it's a problem, why we've got people to let me know it's a problem. If it's not a problem, I don't want to know about it. Don't need me worrying about that, you see. Money's not the key, folks. That's not the key to us being a successful church. It's not programs. Wow. I've got a little notebook I keep, uh, well, I had before the flood got a hold of it. And it's got a whole list of ministry possibilities. And a lot of those are ministries that, that I initiated years ago. We uh, really great ideas. Not a thing in the world wrong with the idea. And, and it's not to say the program wouldn't work. And some of them did work for a while. And then after a while, it's back to square one, you see. That's the way most of them, may. programs come and go. The key is not better programs. We need better people. 
And the only way we're going to be better people is for us to be filled with the Spirit. You know, we blame our failures on a lot of things. Sometimes we preachers blame it on the times that we live in. Well, you know, we're living in the last days. We really can't expect God to do much today. Like God has changed. Well, yeah, but it's so hard today. You can't even safely go out on visitation anymore. Are you kidding me? Do you think it was ever safe? Man, I've had them meet me. At, I'm serious. I've had them to meet me at the door with a shotgun pointing at me. It's never been safe. I've been preaching over 50 years, and that happened like 50 years ago. It's never been safe. Do you think it was safe for those believers back here in the book of Acts? Was it safe for them to go out there from door to door? Well, they were hated. They were beaten. They were imprisoned wasn't safe back then. We like to blame our failure on something. And the truth of the matter is the real problem's us. That, that's, that's where the problem is. It's with us. It's not, it's not with the times that we live in. It's not with the lack of a good program or better music or anything else. If the truth is known... There are members of this church that are out of control. I'm just not saying that willy-nilly and just I'm not trying to be judgmental of anyone, but I'm saying their attitude and their actions prove that Christ is not controlling their life. I'm not saying it's true of you, but it's true of some members of this church. And that's not to say it isn't true of you either. Because none of us know each other entirely, do we? And it just might be someone here tonight and you are so out of control. It might be that it hasn't really manifested itself all that much to where it's noticeable to the other members. We've kept it under wraps and no, you know, nobody knows. They have no idea how far we are away from God. They have no idea how long it's been since we, in the privacy of our home, opened up the Word of God and just, I mean, dove in and stayed down deep and just really fed our soul on the Word of God and prayed. And for some people it has been, wow, maybe months since you've done that. It's real easy for us to put a nice suit of clothes on, come to church, paint a smile on our face and shake hands with everybody and say, how about them Astros? And everything looks all right. But it just might be there's some folks way, way, way out of control. And I say that because it might be that the Spirit of God's not controlling what's going on in your life. And let me tell you, any life, mine or yours or anybody else's, any life that is out of control is headed for disaster. You start down the road, and if you get out of control, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a wreck. Man, I like that. And Bev, first thing she did, wanted it turned on, that, that beeper that comes on when you start going across the lane, you know, beep, 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 and... You're drifting, and uh, 
I don't know who would have needed that, but she felt like since I was going to be driving, it needed to be on for some some reason. But you let that car get out of control, and uh, and you're you're headed for danger. A life out of control. I'm talking about Christians now. A Christian that is out of control is headed for disaster. You're going to get hurt. And I don't want that to happen to any member of this church, folks. I hope and pray tonight that every one of us has a desire for this church to be a spirit-filled church. And it has to happen one person at a time. It might be that, that, that you'll be the spark that God uses to ignite a passion for pleasing Christ in somebody else's life. Could it be you? Why not you? Why should we expect that out of anybody else if we don't expect it out of ourselves? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, how we thank you, dear Lord, tonight for the record before us as you've allowed us to look back in time and to see not just the acts of the apostles, but to see the acts of the Holy Spirit working in their lives and to see what that you were able to do back then and to be reminded of what you're able to do today. And Lord, I just pray tonight that your spirit might speak to our hearts. Lord, that each and every one of us might examine ourselves, that we would not, that we'd not try to examine our neighbor or our spouse or our children or our parents, but may we examine ourselves. Lord, tonight, if we're out of control, I pray that each and every one of us might yield ourselves with, without any reservation or hesitation, that we might yield ourselves to you and, and say, Lord, just take us and mold us and make us whatever it is that you want us to be. Here we are. Use us for your glory, for we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and we sing tonight, it's number 366. God's speaking to your heart. Would you come?